Pension schemes are coming under increasing pressure and requirement from regulators to report their carbon emissions. Schemes of more than £5 billion in assets in the UK have had to comply with the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure Rules since October 2021. And this scope widened to schemes of more than £1 billion in assets in October 2022. The Pensions Regulator's Chief Executive, Charles Council, revealed earlier this month that 23 schemes had published their TCFD reports by July 31st, while the Watchdog expects around another 50 to publish their reports soon. My name is Alex Janiel, I'm the Deputy Editor at Pensions Expert, and to discuss net zero and pension schemes, I'm joined by Philip Shucksmith, Portfolio Manager in Newton Investment Management's Real Return Team, and Martina McPherson, Head of ESG Product Management within the Financial Information Business Unit at SIX, which is the exchange group that operates the Swiss and Spanish stock exchanges. Welcome both. Uh, Martina, we'll start with you. Can, can you talk to you about how um, net zero and different asset classes interact, really? So it, equities are the easiest asset class to assess for things like carbon emissions and general ESG compliance. What can we do with that information? Sure. We we obviously have the challenge that uh, we traditionally looked at ESG in equities uh, for more than now 20 plus years. Again, we shouldn't forget that for the last 10 plus, we started looking into other traditional asset classes such as fixed income assessments. And they are getting increasingly into the radar and into the focus when we talk or when we shift from corporate towards sovereign risk analyses. But beyond that, obviously, the alternative space has just picked up in the last five years in particular. Um, that ultimately means there is currently a lack of different type of frameworks that are harmonized and standardized the same way as we are seeing it, for instance, in the listed space, potentially a lack of comparable data for ESG and climate risk information. And lastly, of course, there are different type of trajectories when you are assessing and comparing the different asset classes, alternative asset classes themselves. In our recent book, ESG and Portfolio Analysis by Risk Books, which was published today, we actually have compared the main challenges when you look at alternative asset classes from private equity, real estate, infrastructure, and private debt. And we found you know, that they're ultimately inherently, if you look at least at portfolio management, three different layers when it comes to ESG compliance for alternative assets. And that's obviously the asset manager's ESG compliance uh, itself. That's the portfolio ESG compliance. And there's also the aspect of portfolio ESG alpha. And we also are highlighting that these different type of challenges are multiplied in regards to ESG and alternative assets when you look at the comparability of data and information that's currently available in the private asset space. I wouldn't call it there's not enough data generally, but there's potentially not enough and really data in line with preset standards and frameworks in the private asset space. And that, of course, is an increasing problem when and where you're looking at net zero assessments and trajectories, as well as the broader ESNG assessments in this space. Uh, Phil, I mean, to establish the equities, they're definitely the easiest asset class to obtain information, but what is the real utility of it? Yeah, so I think by illustrating how our process has changed, maybe the availability of information and what that brings will become apparent. So if you were to take a responsible investment analyst role at Newton five years ago and compare it to today, it looks very different. Uh, five years ago, it was really a data collection exercise, spending a lot of time trawling through documentation, annual reports to obtain the information before you can then synthesize it. Today, a lot of that information is more readily available, published, aggregated. So we can aggregate that data and synthesize that data quantitatively. So that's something we've done. We've put a lot of investment into that, built an ESG app internally. And what that means is it frees up 
a lot of time for the responsible investment analyst to actually focus on more material ESG issues, um, to dig into them, spend more time, and also on engagement with companies. And, and engagement is an area which can add a lot of value to us, but it is also something that clients are very much interested in. So over, I'd say, well, over the last year, we've actually reorientated our whole approach to responsible investment uh, and the roles within the investment team along those lines. Martina, we touched on fixed income, but corp, we know, we, let's maybe pull that apart. Corporate bonds, for example, we know we readily assess for investors looking to hit net zero, but sovereign debt can't currently be measured for carbon emissions. So how can we work around that? Well, there's a big challenge, obviously, um, with, as you highlighted, the green bond space. I mean, across primary and secondary markets. First of all, you know, there is a pluralism of green bond standards. Um, if we look, for instance, at the Lux flag, if we look at Greenfin, if we look at the sheer pluralism of, of restrictions, thresholds, as well as expectations around governance when it comes to these different type of labels that are then applied, you know, ultimately for secondary markets. Hence, you know, the, it is increasingly challenging to look at the different type of green bond standards. Again, primary markets, we should specify, obviously, we have the ICMA, the International Capital Markets Association standards. We have a European green bond standard now, which is a regulatory standard. And again, then we have the different type of thresholds when it comes to secondary markets. What is interesting is that most of these green bond standards in primary and then into secondary markets commonly apply to um, a broad range of issuers, including sovereigns. But they ultimately, if you look at sustainability-linked bonds, for instance, look specifically at the KPIs that are being set at a corporate issuer level. And I think it's just the latest string of research that looks at how these type of KPIs to sort of target sustainability-target-linked bonds, how, how they ultimately could be applied to sovereign bond assessments. But this is a, a more recent school. Obviously, sovereign issuances have just kicked off since 2018 into 19. So also the most recent trajectory when we look at the green bonds market and we take a stab at, you know, I think the first climate awareness bond, which was issued by a multilateral organization back in 2007, then the ultimately uh, the corporate issuers came on board in the turn of 2013 to 14. And then again, if we look at and compare that state issuers and ultimately sovereign issuers were the last ones in line. So this means, you know, there's obviously still a broader confusion around the different type of standards and labels. There's definitely pluralism. And given the different layers of restrictions then into secondary markets, Regarding corporate, but also sovereign issuances, it becomes increasingly a mission impossible for investors. And this is, by the way, a term that was used by Contogo's latest report in comparing the most prevailing labels in the ESG and green bond space. It becomes a mission impossible for investors to track, to trace and ultimately to comply. And hence, we need to ask ourselves if and when, how we want to look into the best practices for ESNG and green finance compliance, and when and where we are ultimately creating challenges for what I highlighted, the ESG and alpha context. Sure, Philip. And yeah, the concerns around labeling of so-called green bonds are well known. I mean, Phil, how do you hold bond managers to account? What can asset owners and their advisors do to hold, hold these bond managers to account the labeling of fixed income as green? Well, I mean, I can only sort of speak for what we do and ourselves. We would view green bonds as something you very much have to look at individually. It'd be quite hard to buy a green bond ETF if one exists. I think given the just how 
innovative, shall we say, the space is and companies trying out different things. But I think if I give an example of a sustainability linked bond, I think that might help to bring it alive a little bit. Because, say, if we take H&M as an example, the, the characteristics we're looking for here are the a company needs to identify some clear KPIs to be measured on. Those KPIs need to be relevant and set sufficiently challenging targets. And then third, they need to have an impact on covenants. So if you take H&M as an example, they've got three KPIs for recycled material, which they want to hit 30% by 2025. They've got scope one and two emissions down 20% by 2025. And they've got scope three emissions down 10% by 2025. So these are obviously relevant, given that we know H&M's a clothing retailer. These are, these are relevant KPIs. We also can see relative to the history, relative to peers, that they are material, they're ambitious. And then we can also see in the covenants that if they don't achieve them in 2025, and this is a 2029 maturity bond, there will be a, a coupon step up about 25 basis points step up. And given that this bond was issued at a 0.25% coupon in euros just about one year ago, that's quite a meaningful step up. So I think you can see by that that a green bond isn't, or a sustainability linked bond doesn't need to be a sort of a random fictional construct. It can be linked to very specific KPIs, be very measurable and something you can get very comfortable about. The issue for the trustees is it's all very well to look at one. How do you look at all that data and aggregation? Uh, I don't know. I mean, other asset classes like multi-asset credit, some private markets are much harder to measure for carbon emissions. So, Martina, what work has been done in this space to make it easier for net zero focused investors to understand the ESG credentials of these assets? We can definitely track some of the initiatives around the Transition Pathway Initiative, Climate Action 100, and other coalitions that have been set up actually for the corporate and investor value chain to better assess and align around Paris Agreement and, of course, net zero trajectories. I think what what is clearly still a newly development is now to move beyond the traditionally agreed ways of assessing carbon footprints and or carbon intensity. I think there's an interesting new school of thought that looks at climate war assessments, value at risk assessments, and implied temperature rise assessments, and obviously relevant data sets that bring investors much closer to the Paris and net zero alignment trajectories. And these are definitely on the at the portfolio level, the different type of assessment methodologies to watch out for. And then to, and I think Phil alluded to that a bit earlier, then to align portfolio construction with active ownership and stewardship through either collaborative engagement, utilizing some of the frameworks set out by Transition Pathway Initiative, by Climate Action 100 and or other net zero alliances, and then to determine when and when how you are looking for your own transition pathway initiatives to be in line with these collective engagement initiatives and how you actually report on progress. And I think there's also this school of thought now. We've seen a lot of the commitments in the climate action space. There's a lot of actually confusion now even, I think, amongst the banking community around these type of commitments. But I think we need to follow through the commitments through actions. And that, of course, is in the first instance in the investment management sphere through portfolio alignment and through active ownership and stewardship. Phil, would you agree? Yeah, a lot of different asset classes have data available. You asked earlier about sovereigns. 
And actually, when you think about the amount of data that's out there for sovereigns that's been collected over years by institutions like the World Bank, you could almost argue that you have better quality data and a longer history of data than you have for many corporate issuers. So you can build a process around that data. We've been running a process since 2018 on a sovereign uh, sustainability matrix. And if we take climate change, for example, we incorporate data from Climate Action Tracker, and we also incorporate data from the Yale Environmental Protection Index. Uh, so these are two data sets publicly available that we can incorporate within our sovereign ESG analysis. And finally, I want to put this to both of you. I mean, it's, it's clearly a concern among pension scheme trustees that they uphold their fiduciary duties and above all else. I mean, what would you say to those trustees are concerned by what the net zero agenda means for their ability to fulfill these duties? Perhaps Martina, go to you first. Sure, with pleasure, Alex. Fiduciary duty is not at odds with ESG investing. That's also some of the conclusions that we are highlighting in the upcoming book. And obviously, that's coming back to the John Kay review or the Law Commission's review around fiduciary duty that was kickstarted in the UK around 2008 into then 15 and forth following. There's, of course, an increasing anti-ESG lobbying stance, and that goes hand in hand with, for instance, the anti-climate lobbying stance in certain jurisdictions. And they're very often, you know, motivated and driven by political and potentially now increasingly the geopolitical agenda. For instance, hence, global sanctions management and oversight is key. But what we also see in bringing it back to the context of sovereigns, in our book, we looked specifically in the chapter I co-wrote on the controversies element and controversies when we not just only look at corporate controversies and business involvement in certain controversial activities and areas, but also in the sovereign context where we looked at sovereign risk controversies. And we found, you know, that many ESG funds, at least until January 2022, had heavy exposures to non-democratic regimes, and some of them still do. You know, and we found that there was heavy exposure, for instance, to Russian government or sovereign debt in ESG funds, you know, that remained high until ultimately February 2022. So undertaking a sovereign risk controversies assessment using, for instance, data from Freedom House and the others that are out there, there is Maplecraft to mention one, and of course, Rebecca Sam MSCI and many others that are now looking specifically at the elements of sovereign risk assessments and potentially controversies assessment is key to actually engage with investors on systemic risks, also to now mitigate the impact that ultimately these increasing anti-ESG stance and anti-ESG lobbying has also on portfolio management activities. And I think it's key, given that we are more and more seeing the global impacts of an anti-ESG lobbying stance and an anti-climate stance, that we are now mitigating the efforts through either dedicated sovereign risk assessments and or, of course, sovereign risk engagements. Phil, is there a tension that you recognise when in conversations with investors? I think there's some good things and some bad things that we see on this. So a good thing is that it's forcing the conversation to be had. So trustees asking fund managers, myself, to disclose means that we have to in turn ask the companies that we invest in to disclose. So it brings the conversation up, it keeps it live. And as we've seen with a lot of things, when you have the data, you're able to then measure the data, you're able to do something with it. So I think that's all really good. Where I see some slight issues is in the interpretation. I think some trustees are concerned and are almost interpreting this to mean we need to avoid all high emitting investments. That's understandable, but it's also very problematic because 
these are some of the high emitting parts of the economy by nature are, are the areas that need the most investment to transition. And the other slight problem is on the measurement of it. And I totally understand this, but there's a focus on portfolio level emissions. So tell us what the emissions of your portfolio are and their X. And, and X is supposed to be the good or bad. Well, X really just tells you, do you own more industrial, more physical companies, or, or do you own lots of software companies? So I've got some, some sort of thoughts uh, from my perspective where I think you know, maybe slightly better questions to ask. And I think what would be quite interesting to ask is, well, what proportion of the fund's financed emissions are producing a TCFD report? What proportion of the fund's uh, financed emissions have a net zero target in place that is science-based? And I think these questions are quite interesting because what you're asking in effect is what proportion of, of the funds is aligned to a net zero trajectory? Uh, and that's the key question, uh, rather than asking, are you investing in um, heavy industries or not? That's probably where I would take the conversation. Well, that's unfortunately all we've got time for. Thank you very much, uh, both of you, for being with us today. Um, and if you'd like to read more about net zero and pension schemes, please visit our website at pensions-expert.com. Thank you very much.